If you have a Bible this morning, I would like for you to open it to the book of Lamentations. You say, is that in the Bible? It is. <laughs> Lamentations. I struggled with the title for this morning. I was going to have it to say something about Baal worship and the effect of Baalism in the church. But I simply want to title it this morning, Lamenting with Jeremiah. It is believed that Jeremiah wrote this book. Recently, while traveling out west, Jay was driving, and I got my Bible out to read, and I had no particular place to start, nothing particular to read. I just opened it up, and I asked the Lord for some direction to read something that would benefit me and some information. So I just opened the book up and looked down. It was on Lamentations. And, of course, not being a familiar book and not being a very commonly read book, we sing a hymn out of there from chapter 3 and verse 40, a beautiful song that we sing. But not being familiar with the book, not using the book much, seldom quoting from it, I thought, well, all right, I'll read that. But I got down to chapter 2 and verse 14, and I realized that there was a message there in verse 14 of chapter 2 that really is what the whole book is about, and it typifies today a picture what some of us see in the modern church of this hour. We talk about the decline of the modern church, the different ways that people are believing now that are different from the way the Bible gives us to believe, and they're not bothered by doing it their own way and going different directions because they're having fun. It's like they have created a golden calf or a form of religion that they like. They've got it their way, and they want to worship it that way. And yet the consequences are dire because God has never given us three or four different ways to serve him. You know, folks say it about this divided modern church. Well, they're all going the same direction. They're all worshiping the same God. Therefore, you know, one's not better than the other one. And that's not true. They're not all going in the same direction. They're not even worshiping the same God. And there's a warning here. And somebody... And in the last days, this will be very common, but somebody has to warn the people. You can't look around and, and have a variety of religious opportunities and do this and do that, and they're all okay. You can't do that. There's only one way. It's a narrow way. It's a hard way. It's not an easy way, and most Christians don't want it and look for something else to replace it, something to their own personal fleshly satisfaction. And now this book was written, most people say, by Jeremiah. And it's written in the form of poems, five poems. The first two chapters, and I think the last two, have 22 verses because there's 22 Hebrew words, and each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I guess it was that way so they could memorize the book. But without getting bogged down in things like that, this book was written because Jeremiah had just witnessed the demise of Jerusalem. He had just seen all the things that he had prophesied against it come to pass. And he could have said, like many, well, I told you, I told you, and then walk away. But this was his city. He was a man of God. He loved God. He was treated very badly by the people. He was alone against the whole nation, the only voice in opposition to what people were doing. Nobody else seemed to matter what they were doing. He came along in the days of Josiah, the last good king that Judah had before the captivity. And all of Josiah's offsprings were evil in the sight of God. 
And Jeremiah prophesied during the end, right before the captivity. And he warned the people. He looked at how they lived. He looked at how they treated each other. He looked at how they worshiped other things besides God. Oh, they were religious people. Rebellious people have always, it seems, been religious. They always have something they believe in. They have an opinion about it, and they're satisfied with how they see it and how they approach it and how they do it, and your way is no better than mine. And he began warning people. He said, you're going into captivity. This place is going to be overthrown, and they're going to be ravished, and we're going to be terribly brutalized, and you're going into captivity for 70 years. And they threw him in jail. They threw him in a pit. They tried to starve him. They did everything rude and ornery and hard to Jeremiah that they could. Nobody liked him. He had no friends. Everybody was against him because he had a word from God. He had a word from God to a bunch of people who really didn't want to hear that anymore. They had heard it before in the good days. Jeremiah had seen Jerusalem when it was flourishing, when everything was going well. The kids were playing in the streets and people were talking and the walls were secure and the army was strong and trade was good and everybody had a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. They were doing well. But the more they got away from the way of God, the more they began to lose interest in God. And the more they begin to relax convictions and piety before God. And they were known for that. But the more they begin to relax that and back away from that or get used to all of this talk about, you know, God, the more they begin to get used to that and take it for granted and give up probably certain convictions and ways. They begin to find interest in the Baal way of worship. You know, there's a new Baal. You know, that's not so bad. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. You ever seen them get together? Oh, boy, they have a good time. And they're not restrained by all these rules and regulations and legalism that we have to go through. They have fun in their religion. They begin to mess around with new things that were creeping into the system. They begin to mingle with the ways of the world. And the ways of the world begin to dominate their thinking. And slowly but surely, their whole faith in God begin to erode. They begin to give in to, well, the world. And I believe as a picture and as a type this morning, as I'll refer to it, that Baal worship is an idol that the Christian world has established for itself. In fact, if you don't mind, would you put your finger in Lamentations and quickly turn to Genesis just for a moment, Genesis 11, where I believe there is an attachment to Baal, or where its origins begin. Genesis 11, you all know the Tower of Babel, when the people said in Genesis 11, verse 4, they said, let us build us, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. We want to become closer to God, spiritually uplifted people. Let us build something that has significance that when people see it, they'll think, wow, there's a way to God. And then he goes on. Now look at the very next thing he says. So. And let us make us a name. And as I look today at modern Christianity, a variation of Baalism. 
is people trying to make a name, trying to have something unique that everybody wants to come and hear. Something that we are known for, noted for. We are an us, and people want to be like us. Let us make us a name. Of course, you read in the New Testament, the Bible says us has to go to the cross and die. God didn't create us to do anything for ourselves. He put us on this earth to serve him and to worship him. But boy, we like to get a lot of notoriety. We like to do things our way. So we redesign the system. We begin to leave out certain parts of the gospel because that's a little bit harsh to people. People don't like to hear about the marriage covenant. They don't like to hear about this healing and stuff. And they don't like to hear about the separated life. And they don't like to hear about holiness. They don't. They actually despise hearing that because they get all tore up about it because they like to see themselves. I like who I am. I like where I've come. I think my beliefs are as good as anybody else. And then you begin to hear the gospel, not explained away, but you begin to hear it spoken as it is, and it's like a sword. It's like a sword that begins to pierce on the inside where you can't deny your conscience screams at you and say, you're not doing that. You don't live that way. You don't even believe that. And you try to act like you're all right, but you know that's what the Bible says. You know you don't do it, and yet you hate somebody saying that. Even though you know it's true, you don't want to hear it. And it's like the prophet said, prophesy smooth things. But that's the kind of situation that happens when there's an alternative offered to a modern church that's getting bored with this narrow way, and they want something fresh and exciting and new like other people have, and the more they get of it, the more they lose interest in the right way, and they go astray. Now, Jeremiah saw this, this whole picture I just saw. He saw the trends, and he saw the ways, and he began to warn people. God really touched his heart. He didn't care about getting beat up or thrown into prisons or nearly starved to death and be a bony old prophet. All he cared was that he proclaimed the message of God because his own heart felt something for his people. And when the Chaldeans came in, Nebuchadnezzar came in and just defeated them and made them captive and killed many of them and just devastated the whole thing and brought this desolation. The history says that Jeremiah went through one of those gates and he went into a cavern and he sat down and he wept. He never felt good about it. I told you, I told you, I tried to tell you. He just sat down and he wept because everything that for several hundred years that God had done, it just seemed like it was wiped out because people wouldn't listen anymore. They didn't want God's way. They wanted their way. And the devil always has had those men, as the New Testament says, lying in wait to deceive. They've always been there, and people love deception. If you read the last couple of verses in Jeremiah 5, he said, the priests bear rule by their own means, and the prophets prophesy falsely. And he said, and my people love to have it so, because they're trained that way. And yet there are always a few of us who, if somebody tried that stuff, we would walk out of that. I wouldn't listen to that, because God has set that word in your heart and it's there, and it reminds you there's only one way that is right. Heaven is worth all the effort that we ever have to pay to get there. And hell is an awful place. It's so easy to get there. 
And yet people don't want to hear about heaven and hell. They don't want to hear about God and the devil. They don't mind you talking about good and evil. Add an O to God and take the D out of devil. They don't mind that. They just don't want to be stirred up. They don't want to have to wrestle and deal with and make decisions in their life and give up stuff. So if you're looking with me in chapter 2, having said that, the Septuagint begins this book like this. And it came to pass after Israel had been carried captive and Jerusalem was become desolate, that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented this lamentation over Jerusalem and said, verse 1, he talks about, oh, the city, the city, the city, the people, the city, oh, people. And then we read and get through all of that. We get down to verse 2. We don't have a lot of time to do anything historical this morning. I just want to get to what, as I pray, what is God saying to us as a church, as a people, in this day that was written back in that day? What do I see in Lamentations? What does God say that should affect me in the year 2010? How many of you know that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning? That we're supposed to learn something. Yes, this is a historical fact. This actually happened. Can it happen again? It happened to a nation. Can it happen to a person? Can the picture we see of a people also be applied to a person? So that I can look at this and say what I see about a whole bunch of people can also affect me individually. It can affect Shelbyville Christian Assembly or any other assembly anywhere in the world. There is never a time in our Christian life that we do not have to give heed. There's never a time we must not be sober and watchful. There is never a time that deception ceases from coming your way. There is never a time that an easier way is approaching you to replace his way. Never. The devil never stops doing all the things he's doing to turn you away or to mislead you or to deceive you or as the Bible says, to cause you to wonder. Just drift out there, be religious, but it has no meaning in your life. And you're doing other things. Now you're in the school, we're in the parenting thing, and the, this, and we got a business, we got all this kind of stuff. And the effect of religion and how we do all this is sort of waning. Well, we go to church, we're good people, but it's not affecting our lives. And one day we wander off in some hole, in some dark place, and a spirit of sorrow comes upon us like it did these people. And we cry out to God, what's wrong? I go to church, I give money, I try. And that's what Jeremiah warned him about. He said, what's coming up on you? You're not going to escape. You're going into captivity. They hated him for that. Us? Look how big we are. Look at the magnificence of what we have built here. We have a name. Oh, excuse me, that's Baalism. Jeremiah 2, and verse 14. Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. They have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. Would you agree with me this morning that the root cause of all this devastation were messengers and their message? 
messengers and their message. Now, I want to deal with four things this morning. Messengers, the message they bring, the effect of the message, and if we get to it, the compassion of God. Let's begin with messengers, because it says here, as he did, the prophets, who are the messengers of God, have prophesied vain and foolish things for you. And the end of that verse says, they have seen false burdens and causes of banishments. The messengers, those that the people in the city looked to, to bring them a word from God. The people didn't have scrolls. People didn't have Bibles like we did. They couldn't read it, check it out to see how accurate what they were hearing was. They were just people who went to hear what the renowned, educated people of the day had to say, the preachers. And what the preachers were telling them were wrong things, but the people believed it. And they liked it too. A messenger from God. There are still those around who are, but a true messenger from God. In Malachi 2, he says, the precepts should retain knowledge. So a true messenger must know what the Bible says, must know what God says. And just because you read it doesn't mean you know what it means, so you have to struggle with that. You have to study. You can only by revelation understand what something meant. Now, the true messengers will do that. So they seek to find out. There's this desire, a passion to know. It's not a job you spend a little bit of time with. It's a life you live. And your life you live is not for yourself. It's for the sake of other people. Because what you say is going to affect a lot of people's lives. And what you don't say can affect people's lives. So you want to make sure you get it right as best you know how. So you study and you seek to know. Malachi said the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they, the people, should seek the law or the word of God at his mouth. And then it ends like this in Malachi 2. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is what God's people do. Now, the Bible speaks over and over, both Old Testament and New Testament, about the fact that there are many messengers who are not of God, but God will test his people with them. Remember Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes along and tells you something's going to happen and it happens, but then he misleads you and you follow him because when nobody could do these kind of miracles unless God gave it, you know, we have to follow the miracle. No, you follow the message. If the message doesn't mesh with the word of God, you don't follow. You just stay away from it. Now, I've lived long enough myself, as some of you have. I have seen many movements go. From the early days of the shepherding movement, which began in the very early 70s, I was there. I was at the first conference they ever had on that stuff. I know about that. And the Lagos Rama thing, I was there with that. And then the deliverance thing. And then all the different prophetic things that came and followed that. And then the apostolic things. And then whatever they're doing today things. I've seen every one of them rise and fall. All of them. They all had an element of sensationalism. Something new and exciting. And people went after it. And as a few of us said while they were going, no, no, no. Don't do that. These people are misleading you. Oh, who are you? God would not mislead people and have such a great and wonderful movement take place. And then later on, after the movement died and all those people who 
thought they were prophets or thought they were apostles or thought they were great leaders of the end time, and you see the ruins of it all. A lot of people quit God over this. They gave up. They got wounded. They gave all their money, supported. They were misled. Now they don't even go to church anymore. It's just like you see it now looking back for the last 40 years. You see it. You saw what happened. And people are still looking for something new to happen, and something new will happen. Somebody with tattoos and dressed like he's been working in a garage all day will come out, and he'll holler, bam, bam, and people will fall down and say, this must be God. What does he say? The messenger of the Lord has one thing to say. It's the word of God. And yet you've got to find out yourself if what he said is the word of God. Because they're lying in wait. False prophets are everywhere. One of the things that God hates, one of the things that God hates are people who rule his people. You see, it is obvious that in Lamentation in Jeremiah's day, the people didn't mind being misled by what they were hearing. They didn't know they were being misled. They figured this was God just giving them something new to do, and they began following this new stuff. The vanity, prophesying vanity and foolishness. Foolishness is like food that has no taste. It's senseless. And vanity means useless, and what they were prophesying was useless nothing. Oh, they were probably talking about the issues. Maybe it's political things. Maybe they were talking about how the church should affect every society. We should have some role in dictating policy. Maybe we should demand a moral change in our government, local or national. Maybe we should be out here on the streets carrying a sign saying, we care, and stand around the abortion clinics and say something about that and and write letters to the editors. and, And the church is supposed to have this voice in the community. And yet the Bible says nothing about such a thing. We're here to make disciples unto Jesus Christ. Our life is like a shining light in the community. We're not here to change the world. We can't change the world. As far as I'm concerned, it's crossed the line. And we're just bidding our time because these are the last days. And as I said to a brother this morning, there's not that many people. They all, oh, yeah, these are the last days, these are the last days. They're not even a smidgen of people that really believe it because they don't live like it. Right. We're seeing these things come to pass and seeing these things happen. And people don't mind listening to wrong things and being misled. And people make these statements from pulpits and people just follow that. It's the Nicolaiathan Church of Revelation 2. Nicolaitans mean rule of the people, dominance of the people. I think the Catholic Church is a good picture of that, how the people are dominated by a religious system. It's not biblical, it's not even scriptural, but it's what people want. It is somewhat easy, it's convenient, it's what they want, and so they trust that to be right, and it's not right, and it's not. As so many things are wrong. And so these people are ruled and people are dominated and they're threatened and there's just the shepherding movement. Well, I remember that well. You couldn't hardly brush your teeth. This, I'm making this up, but you couldn't hardly brush your teeth without asking some elder if that brand of toothpaste was okay to brush your teeth with. 
It's just like somebody had to rule you. You no longer knew how to make right decisions. You had to ask somebody what to do. If they said you couldn't go on vacation, well, you didn't go on vacation. That was extreme, but I'm sure it happened. And when the deliverance days came in the mid-'80s, you had to go through deliverance again because it was a new message with new things to it, and you had to go to your minister, and he had to take you through deliverance again. He should have gone through deliverance for all that stuff. Like children playing in the streets. We just mess with the Word of God like we are doing it ourselves. But these things about the false prophets, Paul warned us in Colossians 2, 4, he said, Let no man beguile you with enticing words. Let no man beguile you with smooth speech, educated, enlightened, end-time speech. Cool, very eloquent, and very, very good. Very brilliant, very intelligent. People are caught up today with being smart. Boy, he's so smart. Does he know how many books are in the Bible? Well, no, the Bible's not important. Well, then he's not smart. He is, as we would say, he's dumber than a coal bucket. Because all of his smarts only gets him a better place in hell. What knowledge is greater than the knowledge of God? Was it Jeremiah said in chapter 9, he said, If any man is going to boast, let him boast of this, that he knows and understands God. That he's not the crossword puzzle genius of the year, but a man who knows God. Who puts emphasis upon knowing God today except for a few? And yet when you don't, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to be deterred and led astray. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, Paul wrote. Through philosophies and vain deceits. After the tradition of men, let us make us a name. After the tradition and the ways of men, us. Let no man spoil you through Baalism and end-time idol worship, religious idol worship, the system. We worship the system. We build it bigger. We glamorize it. We put the picture in the paper on Saturday. We come to this. Look at all the things that we do. This is us. You say, well, are you going to heaven? I am a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a whatever. And they point to the system as the Savior. And it's not a Savior. One of the most beautiful designs in all of history probably was Herod's temple. I saw pictures of it when I was in Israel. They had models of it in lots of places. It's spectacular. Absolutely a spectacular edifice. And yet when Titus and the Roman government came down to stop all of this Jewish resistance, they threw that thing down. They threw it over the, what is today the wall. It was sitting up on top, and they threw that thing over the wall piece by piece. If there wasn't a single stone left up there. Now they got that ignorant dome of the rock up there. But at the time, there was this temple, and they threw it over the wall because buildings and edifices and sacrifices to do, that's not what pleases God. If the thing is filled with insults to God and indifference to God or perversion of his word, phew, it's no good. It can't save you. But people like that. So the problem begins in lamentation with the messengers. The people who were preaching, teaching the people were misleading them and deceiving them. Their message, it says, was vain and foolish, which means false and deceptive visions, misleading delusions. 
Would you put your finger here and go to Jeremiah for just a minute? Let me tell you what Jeremiah says, because he was the one that Lamentations was written by, I believe. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2 and 5 and 23. Can you remember those chapters? Right before Lamentations, Jeremiah 2 and 5 and 23. Listen to what he wrote. No wonder he lamented. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8. The priest, be like today the pastor, the preachers, the religious figureheads, the leaders. The priest said not, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew not. The pastors also transgressed against me. What does that mean? Does it mean that the leaders were also doing wrong and sinning? Maybe they were doing well and felt good about what they were doing, and there was a lot of people coming, therefore it must be good. Maybe they were pragmatic. I thought, oh, you know, if it seems to be a lot of people coming, then it must be all right. And the people were coming. They'd always come. But they said, the pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by the system, by Baal, by what we have done. It's all about us. And they prophesied usism, Baalism, systemism, idol worship, and walked after things that do not profit. Now, did he say that? All right, look in chapter 5, verse 30. A wonderful or an appalling and horrible thing is committed in the land. What is it, Jeremiah, you're talking about? Well, this is it. This is what is happening. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. We like it the way it is. We like this system that we have here. This is the way we do it. We're all happy with it. We don't rock boats here. We just like it the way it is. We just don't feel like we have to do all that old stuff we used to do. We just feel like there's this new way. Boy, I've heard that a lot. This new way that God is doing things now. And we like it this way. They leave out a lot of the word. They don't impress upon people the need to live a holy and committed and a godly life. No, no you know, that, that's good. And, but, but, but we are that. Our ministers have told us, like those 250 princes that came to Moses one time, remember they complained to him, who made you the boss? You act like we're not right, that we have to have you. The whole nation is holy. We're all holy. Who told you that? Well, we must be. God led us out of Egypt, didn't he? Didn't he make us his people and single us out for blessing? Well, then we must be all right. And who are you up there to make these little difficult remarks and come off of some hill and throw rocks at us? Two big ones. Ten commandments. Who are you? And the next day they all died. While Moses' one man was up on the hill communing with God, the people down below were creating a new religion for themselves. They made themselves a god and then they began to dance. It couldn't be wrong, could it, for God's people to be happy? Happy, 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 happy. 
couldn't be wrong. Look how glad we are. What's the golden calf? Oh, that's just a little something. We don't know where the old fellow went, but we got us a little something here to fool with. <laughs> Come on now, loosen up. Quit being so legal. Come on, man. You can eat that or wear that or go there or drink that. Come on. Quit being so tight. Loosen up. Look at all the people that worship this thing in other countries. They're all alive. They're well. They're healthy. They got armies. They're strong. They got money. Come on, quit telling us everything is wrong about anything that doesn't agree with you. You know how easy it is to be deceived? Just listen to the us voice. Listen to Baal. A golden calf. We threw in all the gold and this thing come out. They told Moses. Aaron said, well, we just threw it in there and it came out like this. Right. Just pitch your gold over your shoulder and get out of the way because here comes Baal. Hey, how you doing? I don't think so. And the people were glad because they don't want to follow that solemn word. I've been here long enough to know that people don't want to hear it all the time because they're drifting into other areas. They're hanging out with people that don't do this and they're affecting you. They are. What do you say about leaven? All of you that don't want to draw the line and be separate from the world, what does he say about leaven to any of you and all of you? What does he say? A little what? A little leaven does what? But you don't know that. Because as far as you're concerned, you know what you believe. I know where I stand. I'm not giving into that. I'm all right. Well, anyway, he said in Jeremiah 5, he said, the prophets prophesy falsely. And people love it. How can that be? Well, they do. Of course, Jeremiah asked a question at the end of verse 31. What are you going to do when the end comes? Because now you've got to stand before God and your life has amounted to nothing because what you followed was empty and foolish. And you and all those prophets that misled you are going to stand together in the day of judgment and you're all going to be doomed. You gain nothing. You've got your new house, new car, different wife, but you're going to hell. You're not going to make it. Look at chapter 23. 23 and verse 36. This is rough here because this is so true about what people have done today. Jeremiah 23 and verse 36. And the burden of the Lord shall you mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. For you have perverted, look at this, for you have perverted the words of the living God of the Lord of hosts, our God. Look at how many times God emphasizes who he is. You have changed the meaning of the words of God. You change those meanings because of your desire for admiration or support from all these people. You want them to be on your side and to follow you. You like the notoriety that you get from being me, being talked about admired, spoken of, maybe some books you wrote or something. And you have misled and perverted the gospel. What did Jesus say in Matthew 15 to the Pharisees? He said, you have made the word of God of no effect by your traditions. What it was supposed to do, it no longer does because you have told people that they don't have to do it that way, but they do it your way, which is all about us. It's all about Baalism. 
And when people do that, you hear it all the time today. Well, now we know that in the Bible that Jesus healed people, but now let's admit that he obviously is not doing it today because look how many sick people are in the church. So therefore, the reason people are not healed is because God has changed his mind. He doesn't do that anymore. I just read out of my devotional book yesterday, morning devotion, reading, spoke about Jesus healing all that were sick. And in his little comment, this wonderful writer, wonderful man of God, he just didn't have any light here. He said, well, now, God doesn't do this any, anymore. Today, we have the loving and tender hands of the hospitals and the caregivers. And I wrote, no, and a big exclamation part, and I underlined it. I can't just listen. If it had been your book, I'd have done it in your book. I would have. That's my wife. People give me books to read. I write in them. No, God hasn't changed his mind. Who told us that God has changed his mind and perverted the scriptures? Who has talked us out of our faith? I'm telling you something that's happening right now in the biggest and the most conservative, fundamental, pre-millennial churches. The independent churches, not just the big ones, but almost everybody is telling people that God doesn't do anything he used to do. That now he does it this way or now he does it that way. Or you're presumptuous if you think that God's going to supply your needs or you're going to get your bills paid because you prayed. That's presumption. He may not want your bills paid. He may want you sick. You a liar. That is a lie. God says, I am the Lord. I change not. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. He said, the word that he has sent will accomplish that which he pleases. It will prosper in the thing word to he sent it, period. Right. Now, you change that and you pervert that, then you're misleading people with, fain, with vain and foolish speech. And the church world is full of F-U-L-L of it. And people love to have it so because they don't have to use their faith. And if they don't get healed, it's because God didn't want to. It wasn't a problem of mine. And there's this emptiness that's creeping into the church. And I mean that with all my heart, this emptiness. This emptiness. Emptiness which opens the door to a kind of boredom. which just takes the sap out of it. There's no pop in the message. Just like some of the songs that people sing today, they got so far away from Scripture stuff, there's no pop to it. It doesn't affect, it doesn't stir you. You could sing Lamentations 3. That verse about, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are. Isn't that beautiful? That's scripture. And you sing that and you're affected by it because it's anointed. It just comes off the page into your heart and you begin to sing it. And next thing you know, you're singing it all day long. His compassions, they fail not. So much of what is being preached today is robbing people of their faith. It's tearing down that wall that they could have climbed, gone through, gone over, the healing they could have had, they're being talked out of it by somebody who has never trusted God themselves, and they must think it's all right because if God would have healed anybody, he would have healed him. We just assume on things. Why is this that Jeremiah writes this? Why do people love vanity? 
Why do people pervert? Because people want an easy way. People like us, we want something easier. We don't want to do anything hard if it can be done easy. What a lazy attitude comes into so many people's lives. It's too hard. It's just too hard. I've been told by my preacher, this new message of the last few hundred years, there is nothing I can do to fail. We tell sinners all the time, God loves you. What more could God do than love you? You tell me. Think with me just for a minute, the philosophy of this world. God loves you. God loves everybody. Well, if God loves everybody, then we're all right. If God loves me, he can do nothing more than that. That's the ultimate of what God can do. If he loves me, he loves me. If he loves me, he's going to keep me. If he's going to keep me, then I don't need to struggle or strive about anything. I'm going to heaven. Oh, I've got girlfriend in the other room over there and got a little forbidden libations in my refrigerator. Drinks. And I, you know, I do a little gambling and mess up and I cuss a little bit and I go to church only half the time. But hey, God loves me. The preacher said so. And he told me that I'm all right because I went forward when I was six. I'm all right. I'm going to heaven. There's something about this cheap grace that's taught today. That if you've ever made a, any kind of an, a sign or a signal towards God, then you are forever okay the rest of your life. Now, I'm a Calvinist to a great degree. And I believe in election. I believe in security. I believe in eternal security. But I don't believe anybody is eternally secure just because he said, I want to be saved. If you don't live a saved life, you're not saved. If you don't live a saved life, how do we know you're saved? Because you said you're saved? Well, the devil could say that. A lot of people are being entertained today with comfort and happiness. They don't want you to struggle. They don't want you to strive. They want you to come here and feel good. We know you're going through troubles, and maybe God doesn't want to deal with you according to his word, but, you know, he loves you, and just hold on and let him just hold you. And you that are having difficult times, you're not doing good, not even trying, hey, don't fret, don't struggle with all that. God loves you. You don't have to sit there and listen to all that stuff about separation from the world, come out from among it and be separate. How would you win the world to Christ if you were separate from it? They say. So the antithesis to that is you have to be like the world. You have to dress like them, act like them, walk around as ignorant as they are, and then maybe you can win them. Ignorance breeds ignorance. I don't have to act like anybody. It's not my lifestyle, it's words. God uses words. Somebody may be attracted to me, they may be watching me. They know I don't lie, cheat, steal, or tell jokes. I don't look like them, I don't act like them, but they hear what you say. And one day they come up to you and say, what is the reason of this hope that you have? You're different from everybody I've ever known. I've had people say that a few times in my life. You're not like other people. We were on a hunting trip one time, me and my little friend from Virginia. We were caribou hunting way up in Quebec, so far north that they spoke French. We met all the other hunters in this camp in Toronto, and we all got on our plane and flew up there then, and everybody was telling stories and cussing and carrying on. And in the evening, I was 
rooming with this fellow from, I think, Maryland or Virginia. They got in his room, and he says, so uh, what do you do, Tom? I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church in Kentucky. He said, I knew it. (laughs) He said, you know what? We were talking about you and the other two guys, Brother Condry and Brother Guthrie. He said, we were talking about you all, that you all were different. We never said anything different. We didn't walk around like this. (laughs) We didn't do that. (laughs) We didn't hold our Bibles out like this and get thee away from me. We didn't do that. We were just who we were by nature as Christian people. And he said, I knew it. I knew. And then he started talking about, you know, I go to church. They all do. They all do. They all do. I go to church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Praise God. And he was a good Baptist boy. And so he was sure that I just let him talk. He might have been a good fellow. I don't know. I never got to know him that well. But so much of this today is this grace, this cheap grace that people speak of. You can live any way you want to. You can do what you want to, and your salvation is not in jeopardy. That is a lie because if you're saved, you don't live any way you want to. You are told the way to live, and you live that way. And if you don't live that way, you weren't born again. Whether you don't like that or you do like it, it's the truth. If you sit here for 20 years and your life never shows any evidence of change, then how do I know you're born again? Because you're here? I wish that were true. You could just go to a meeting and you're saved. Man, we could drag them all in here. We'd chain them to the wall and keep them in here. At least they'd be saved. (laughs) This is the life we live. I don't want to be talked out of holiness or separation from the world or the deeper things of God or tongues or overcoming. Tell me what it means. That's why some of us as preachers get in trouble. I know that's why Hobart Freeman got all of his adversaries gathered against him because he explained what it meant. You can preach on some subjects, just a subject in the church and everybody will hear it. And that's fine. Amen. But when you begin to explain it, that's when they get upset. When you begin to explain what faith is, and then people realize they don't have it, and they're scared of it, and they say, stop. Quit talking about it. Turn to Isaiah 30. Quit. I'm going to call 911. I'm going to tell whoever answers the phone, there's a man up here trying to kill us. Come up here quick. Bring several cars. I'm dying. I'm suffering. I'm gasping for breath. I'm not sure I'm saved, and I'm surely I am, but I, I don't feel like I am, and I'm not even sure I am. Send somebody up here and shut this man up. That's what they did to Jeremiah. Isaiah 30, and look at verse 10. What a solemn, sad commentary in the Bible about God's people and what God's people are hearing and what is happening to the people that this should never, ever happen to. Verse 8, now go write it before them at a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come and forever and ever that this is a rebellious people. This is a rebellious, non-conforming, standing away from perverted people. Lying children. 
They say they love God. They say they believe God. They say he's all I need, and they hate the idea that they're limited to that. They do. Verse 10, would say to the preachers, oh, excuse me, would say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak unto us what? Smooth things. Prophesy deceits. One translation says prophesy illusions. Be a storyteller. Give us 30 minutes of stories. Make us feel good. Don't make us sit here and wrestle with what we're going to do about what you said and how we're going to do this and how can this be in my life. Don't make me be in turmoil with myself. I didn't come here this morning to strive and struggle and be all mentally tore up. I came here to fold my arms and hear some nice things said about me that I can and I have, and it's all right, and it's no big deal. God understands after all. Just tell me that. Put it together in some package where it's really smooth, and boy, I'm sitting there admiring what you said. I don't know what you said, but the way you said it was really good. Do that. Give me a little church somewhere where I can just feel good about myself. Preach comfort and happiness to me. Make me comfortable. Make me happy. Avoid saying all those things that make me uncomfortable or things that would make me unhappy. Cater to my fleshly nature. Get away from this holy one of Israel, the holy one. Of the whole. Every week, man, that's all you talk about. Verse 11 where it's just what I just said. Get you out of the way and turn aside out of this path and cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Talk about politics or, or social issues. Quit talking about God and the Bible. Quit doing that. The Bible in basic English, I don't endorse any of these translations, but they have a translation which I can see this. He said this. Do not give us the word of what is true. Say false things to us to give us pleasure. Make us feel good. Make us meet you at the door when you know when I meet you at the door when y'all leave and we shake hands back. I want you to come by and say, "Man, brother Hamlet, that was so good." Ooh, we I'm coming back. You're preaching on what sermon on the mount? Well, you know, I come to think of it, I have company. I don't want to hear what is going to make me struggle. If you get hard stuff, here's what I'm going to do. That's just your opinion, you legalistic old coot. I mean, that's what I'm going to say. That's what I'm going to say because that would justify why I don't have to listen to you anymore. Now, somebody's going to call me that, I'm sure. <laughs> they say false things to give you pleasure. Listen to this in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1. Let me just read this. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 6 says, From which some having swerved, that is to deviate, to err, they have turned aside into vain jangling. In other words, first of all, when you begin to swerve, the word swerved in the Greek means to miss what you're aiming at and to go astray. Which some having swerved from the truth have turned aside unto man's fables and have gone astray. Man's fables is Baalism. 
Man's fable is usism. It's all about me and what I say and what I think and do. And people love to have that because it's no challenge to it. The Old Testament folks love their idols because you stick a statue up here. You, the Indians could stick a totem pole up there and bow to it and throw rice on it and put a bowl of beans at the bottom of it, and it didn't matter because this thing cannot talk back to you. It, it cannot identify your sins. It cannot disagree with your lifestyle or nothing like that. It just sits there like that old song, Kalijah was a wooden Indian standing by the door. You remember that song? <laughs> Only the ones with gray hair shaking their head, yeah. <laughs> It's just an old wooden statue, just a piece of gold that jumped out of the fire and looked like something. Just a carving of a tree, Jeremiah says in chapter 10. You cut it down, you attach it to the floor so it won't fall over, and then you have the gall to worship that thing in place of God. No wonder they got judged. What do we put before God? Our business, our children, school, our efforts, vacation, whatever. What do we put before him? Folks, listen to me. Let me get off sub for just a moment. There was a time I remember early on, we wouldn't miss church for anything. It wasn't important enough company. It didn't feel bad enough. It couldn't snow too much. We just didn't miss a chance to meet together. We were there. Today, folks miss for nothing. I'm talking to us because it's lost that pop. Early on, we were... Dun, 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 dun. I'm going to church tonight. Get out of my way. And we just went. <laughs> and now it's, I think I'll stay home tonight. I'm kind of tired. Tired. Maybe God will refresh you when you get here. Maybe something good will happen. Maybe it's the night of nights. I know the biggest losers on Wednesday night. You don't want to miss that. I mean, that's important. <laughs> oh, are you still in Isaiah 30? Would you look at verse 12? Wherefore saith the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word. Do people despise it? Because you despise this word, you don't want it. And you trust in what men are telling you, oppression and perverseness. And you stay on those things. That's the things you stay with. Verse 13, therefore, this iniquity shall be unto you as a breach ready to fall, swelling and so forth. You're fixing to fall apart and lose. You know what people don't like about the gospel? The struggle. They don't. I'm talking about things like faith, about divine healing. And you begin to explain how it works and why it works and pictures and illustrations in the Bible. And you begin to get uneasy because you know that you haven't gone that far or you're not doing that. And there is this tendency to shift from the importance of that into something that is important too, but it's not as important. Is there such a thing as some things being more important than other things? Now, I know theologically all oh, you would never say that some things are more important than other things, but there is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. It's greater. It has more prominence. It's more central to what God is doing than other things. It's something that should be taught on with greater intensity than the others, but the others should be taught. What was it Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23? I think it's verse 23. He said... 
you tithe and you do this, but he said, you have omitted the weightier matters of the law. What is weightier? It's heavier on you like a, a little burden. It's not easily gotten rid of. What they say by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, it said his letters are weighty. And people say, oh, man, that's too hard. Don't they say that today? That's too hard. That's too hard. Back off. That's too hard. You're getting legalistic. You're requiring and demanding that we live it line upon line and precept upon precept. That's too hard. Give us some room. All right, read Romans 14. There you got room. There's your room. I'll give it to you. Free. Romans 14. For anybody that likes to argue and debate and get all sorts, read Romans 14. But it's too hard. All the time we have to wrestle with all of this kind of The weightier matters of the law are those things that require contemplation or thought. Questions and answers. You talk to yourself. Do I do? I don't know if I do that or not. Well, should I? I'm not. I, why, why don't you do it? Because I don't want to. Don't say that. Somebody will hear you. No, I'm looking for an easy way out. I don't want to have to put my hands on the plow and not have the privilege of looking back and see how things are going where I left. I mean, come on. Don't tell me I'm going to lose my soul because I turn around. I ain't going to tell you anything. I'm just going to say, read it. Let God speak to you. Let the Lord speak. Things that need reflection and need attention. Remember that time he said there was a man whom the sower and the seed, some of the seed fell upon the hard soil. And Jesus said, because the man understood it not, the fowls came and got it, and it was no more. Understood it not. A little, well, Greek word that means to contemplate, it means what you heard, you deal with it. What about that? Oh, but some people hear that word and say, well, I never was one much for all that theological stuff. Such stuff, I don't want a lot of preachers today know that people don't like theological stuff, so they avoid it. But what do you replace it with? Vanity and foolishness. Useless things. Things that have no eternal value whatsoever. Jesus said, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. He mentioned three things. You know what they were? One of them was faith. One of them was justice and mercy. This is the way God deals with it. He's merciful, but he means what he says. You must trust him. He said, these you should have dealt on without leaving the others undone. Because some of these are more important eternally than the other things are. More central in what God is doing and more prominent in how a man's life is affected than the other things are. All of these are things that the Bible speaks about. People don't want to be dealt with their weaknesses. You don't want to be told you can't read that trash you read or read those novels you read about that romantic. You, young people don't want to be told you shouldn't date and wear some of these nasty clothes that, that the kids in the world you just don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that you can't have a social drink every now and then. You don't want to hear that our lives are reserved unto holiness and that we are to exemplify to the world the work that God is doing. We don't do that stuff anymore. We don't go there anymore. We're not like that anymore. We have changed. 
and yet you don't change because you felt bad about your sins once. You change because you get a hold of that plow and you won't let go of it. And God keeps putting his word before you if you're in the right place. He keeps putting that word before you. You can't get away from it. Every time you go to church, you're told again. Every time you get there, God speaks to you again. Even just picking it up and reading it, and you find some things. This happened not long ago. You find something that puts tears in your eyes. Oh, God. You know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. And I'm no prophet. You know that, and I know it, and everybody else. God knows it. But there are things that really bother you. After 40 years, almost 30 in one place, you begin to see things. And you don't know what to do about things, but the one thing you know to do is to preach a word. This is the only thing that God is ever going to use to fix anything. They shall know the truth, and the truth shall make them free. I can turn around today and look at all the places where there used to be thriving and flourishing Bible meetings, teaching me. Remember that? Those of you that were here 30 years ago, 20 years ago, somewhere, there was a little meeting somewhere, and they were clapping their hands and playing tam somewhere, and now they're all but gone. And start with the messengers in every single case. Go to the messenger and see what happened. We survive only by the grace of God, not by any shrewd, clever ways that we have, only by the grace of God. And we existed as long as we have here. Trust me with that, only by the grace of God, because we have little to commend us. You know, we're just a bunch of hillbillies. We're just a bunch of Kentucky hicks stuck in a place called Shelby Town. How could anything good come out of all of this? I don't know either. But we're here, and he's gracious, and he meets with us, and he never leaves us alone. That's a good thing, folks. That is a real good thing. Turn to this. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 17. He had just said in verse 16, the prophets, the people that are preaching to you, the ones you're setting under listing and following, they're making you vain. Empty. They're making you empty. You're bringing forth nothing because nothing's being put in there. You think it's good because there's a lot of words and a lot of activity, but there's nothing in there. You're spiritually a dead man. They make you vain, but, verse 17, they say, these prophets, they say unto them that despise me, this is the big Baal church, they say unto them that despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace, and they say unto everyone that walks after the imagination of his own evil heart, no evil shall come upon you, brother, you're fine. And God says, you'll see. You'll see how that you've been deceived and all of that. In verse 26, how long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man to his neighbor as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. 
the prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? I'll tell you what, let the prophet of God prophesy and let the prophets of Baal prophesy and see which one is the wheat and which one is the chaff. Because one will be like wheat, one will be like chaff. One has fiber, one has nothing. God said, when my people speak, there is something there. When they speak, there is nothing. We're in the last days, brothers and sisters. These things are coming to pass. They're coming down. The church, I believe in this hour, is asleep. I believe it is sold its soul for a bowl of man-made pottage, soup. And I believe they have been resigned to backing off and just sort of going with the big church in America, the big flow. The bigger, the better. The brighter, the more exciting, and therefore the more right it must be. And yet, they're like wandering people in a desert. They have no goals, they have no aims, except who's going to be the next elected official. They feel so good about their political activity. One said in the paper here just last week that voting is a God-given right. Huh, is that so? Let me see. God-given right. I go down to the pole and I pull the Republican stick whatever you pull. I've been a long time, I think. I don't know how many years ago it was when I voted last, but another one in the church, my brother in the church, he goes and pulls a Democrat stick. One of them wins and one of them loses. One of them was right, one of them was wrong. God led me to wrong, led him to right, or led him to wrong, me to right. Voting is just another way to divide us. God-given right. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe there's any truth to that at all, and yet these people love that because it takes away from listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Now we can talk about patriotism. We can talk about the Constitution and the flag, and we can talk about a lot of other things which are good for America. It's the greatest country in the world, no question. But as Christians, our goal is not that. Our goal is not to change the world, but to let God change us in the world. And in closing, I want you to turn to chapter 2 again. Lamentations chapter 2. Thy prophets again have seen vain and foolish things for you. The end of that verse says, they have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. Now what does the middle of the verse say? They have not discovered what? Listen, the leaders have not discovered our iniquity. How could we think that the people of God have iniquity? How could God's people be iniquitous? Jeremiah wrote this. He said, these prophets and these preachers today who are making a fortune out of you, they have not shown you your sinful ways. They have not shown your sinful ways, and as a result of your sinful ways, you're what? What's that verse going to say? You're what? You're captivity. Captivity is a curse. When you are under a curse, you are held captive. You are powerless to resist it. You are hemmed in by what a curse is.
It hems you in. It masters you, and it controls you, and you're in a cage, and you can't get out because you're under a curse. Nothing ever changes. Try as you may, you can never get away from it. You are powerless to resist, and you're held captive. You know why you're held captive? Because of your iniquity. We'll save that for next time. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, grant us in this room as often as we meet to do justice to your holiness and to your word. That no matter what it costs, that we preach it, that we speak it as you say it. May there be an anointing upon every ear and every heart upon these lips of clay that the word will not be denied and cannot be denied. It'll come forth as it's supposed to come forth and we will hear it as you intended for man to hear it. That we won't change it, pervert it, or alter it, but that we will speak it and hear it as it is. And that it will have a profound effect on each one of our lives in our homes, our church. You will do us good and not evil. But Lord, turn us. As Jesus said to pray, deliver us from evil. And I know you are. I know that's what your word will do for us. It'll turn us away from evil. And we'll be spared. Lord, there's not a soul in this room sitting in any of these seats right now that does not have a preciousness to them. There's great value and worth to every human life. Help us this morning by your grace and by what you do to realize that our hope is in you. That our soul's eternal well-being depends on how we respond to you. I ask you to grant us that this morning in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I ask that you would guide the affairs of this assembly in the years to come, so long as Jesus tarries, that we never lose sight of who we are and what we're here for. That as you would raise us up and set us down, we would always hear the word of the Lord. With conviction, I ask you to bless us all this morning in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O my God, with all of Thy 